As always, we appreciate all of our song leaders. That includes Brother Eddie tonight as he directs us in, in these songs and how joyous and how wonderful the messages have been. And we're delighted also to be able to lift our thoughts together collectively in prayers we've done tonight. What a great comfort and a soothing message to the soul always to be able to pray. And to know that our Heavenly Father has promised that His ears will be open to the prayers of His children. 1 Peter 3 verse 12. It is with that in mind that we do come tonight to the 36th Old Testament book. The book of Zephaniah. If you would be turning in your Bible to that location. And we'll spend the next few moments reflecting somewhat upon that book. Appreciating in it some rather amazing lessons quite frankly. As we do that I've chosen to devote this introductory slide to, to at least some very general considerations. You may notice that these minor prophets, though short they have been, they nonetheless are inspired. And they never cease, I would think, to amaze us in light of messages delivered thousands of years ago from our perspective. And yet they have been timely in many ways. They have been rather penetrating in many ways. And that will also be true even as we come to the lesson tonight. Zephaniah is a short book, only has 53 verses. And yet I think you'll be amazed to notice that the theme of the book, if you'd like to just remember one little thought about it, it may well prompt you to remember in many ways the entire message. It's the day of the Lord. That phrase occurs 16 times in 53 verses. Not much doubt then what the central theme is going to be. Not much doubt what the major thrust in many ways at least will relate to. As we consider that, we in fact tonight, through much of our lesson, will make a reflection on developing that theme and using it in a dramatic way to remind us about the day of the Lord that is in our future as well. I'd like to use then some of our initial time to reflect upon the setting of that book and maybe assert as to why that theme was so vital for those of that day. It might well be developed this way. The people of Judah had developed and in fact had enjoyed a fairly extensive amount of time in connection to the good times during the reign of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, remember, was a good king. He at least had an interest in godliness. He at least had an interest in turning the attention of himself and that of his people into the direction it ought to have gone. He reigned for almost 30 years, but yet he died in 686 B.C. And yet following him, Following him, may I say, were two kings, one named Ammon, one named Manasseh. And you won't find any worse kings in all of Judah than them. They were just terrible. Manasseh reigned for 55 long years. Ungodly, wicked. Their attention was nowhere near where it ought to have been. As the people of Judah suffered beneath the reign of those two the nation fell into a time of wickedness. Idolatry became rampant. Disadvantageousness and other matters like it were easily seen everywhere around them. You'll notice on the slide I merely say it like this. Sinfulness not only became the order of the day in, in the world of religion, it became the order of the day in many ways in their daily life. It was just a very sad time religiously. It is for that reason I would say this, that's the very occasion of the writing of the book of Zephaniah. During those dark days, those dark times of sinfulness, when matters such as that were rampant, that's when God called and commissioned the prophet Zephaniah 
to write that which he did. You'll notice about two-thirds of the way through that slide, there was at some time later than this, the good days under King Josiah. But that was not yet. Zephaniah didn't write during his time. And so they people have those things to look forward to. But for right now, could I invite you to note this? In the opening verse of the opening chapter, we are told the following. The word of the Lord which came unto Zephaniah, the son of Cushai, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hiskiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. There was going to be a revival shortly, but right now it just hadn't happened yet. Josiah, remember, was only eight years old when he began to reign, and so it would take a few years for him to grow up enough to where he could begin to make some decisions, moving things in a direction of more godliness. For right now, it still wasn't good. One other thing that you might have noted, this man Zephaniah was a descendant of the person who was called Hezekiah. On the slide, I've asked you to note this. He was a prophet, or rather a descendant of Hezekiah. Now, you and I have already noted something about him. Don't you find that intriguing? Maybe the final state, we could say this. The day of the Lord, in the mind of the people, was a day of victory, a day of celebration, a day of jubilation. It was a day when everything was going to be wonderful and a day when everything was going to fall in place by virtue of the Lord's direction. And Zephaniah wrote to them in three chapters and said, your thinking is amiss. The day of the Lord is not what you're picturing. It is not going to develop the way that you perhaps anticipate. And three chapters are going to be devoted to warning them urging them, reminding them that there were other matters to be put in place in order to recognize that the day of the Lord would be the way you think it should be. Oh, it's true that the day of the Lord will be a many-faceted day, and we shall in fact see some of that beginning on the next slide. This next slide, we start in chapter 1 to observe this. In verses 2, 3, and 4, of chapter 1, these words begin the book and listen to how shocking they are. God speaking says, I will utterly consume all things off the land, saith the Lord. I will consume man and beast. I will consume the fowls of the heaven and the fishes of the sea and the stumbling blocks with the wicked. And I will cut off man from off the land, saith the Lord. I will also stretch out mine hand upon Judah and upon all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place and the name of the Kimmerims with the priests. Zephaniah wastes no time. Second verse of the book, he says, I'm going to consume everything. Nothing's going to be left. That would include not only the place of Judah, he even made mention of some of the animals and talked about the characteristics attached to the totality of that consumption. On that slide, I entitled it that way. You may have noticed some words in that reading that were unusual. Who are these Kimmerims he mentioned in verse 4? What about these others that he also mentions? I've invited you on the slide to note some of that. Those were people guilty of idolatry. 
God says, I have made note of that of which my people have been guilty. Many of them have turned their attention to Baal. Did you notice that mention? Many have turned their attention to being servants of the Kimmerims. These were idolatrous priests. Not only that, mention is made in verses 5 and 6 of Malcolm. Notice the wording, M-A-L-C-H-A-M. Malcolm was the chief god of the Ammonite peoples. And there were those who had turned their attention to following after Malcolm. God says, I'm aware of what's been taking place. And this day of the Lord that you think that's going to be a day of victory and a day of wonderful celebration, it's going to be a day of reckoning wherein I will take note of those who have chosen to turn their attention in service to idols, be it Baal, be it the Kimmerims and that which they teach, or be it Malcolm. Not only that, you notice a little bit later in this same chapter, verse 6, paints another picture. And them that are turned back from the Lord, and those that have not sought the Lord nor inquired of Him. Isn't that an expansive description? In other words, there were those who had never turned their attention to serving God. God says, I'm aware of them and I shall judge them. But did you notice He also mentioned there are those who chose to turn their back upon Him. They once had been a faithful servant. They once had been a recognized Jew and then they had chosen to turn to idolatry. God says, I'll judge them as well. Doesn't that sound in parallel like the Christian faith today? Those who never begin to walk with the Lord and also those who do begin but then choose to turn away from it. The parallel of that day was this. God was mindful of both scenarios. Notice the next verse, please. Hold thy peace at the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand. Notice it wasn't going to be far away into the future. For the Lord hath prepared a sacrifice, He hath bid His guests. That day of the Lord is portrayed as a feast, and God has invited one and all to come. But it wasn't going to be a day of celebration for everybody coming. It was going to be a day of consumption, a day you see of defeat, a day of total consideration in light of what we've already read. Are you beginning to get a feeling that this description of the day of the Lord was a day that they likely didn't enjoy. It was a description they didn't find very appealing. One last thing as you and I note the bottom of that slide. Verse number 10, it was going to be a day of howling because of this idea. It shall come to pass in that day, the day of the Lord, saith the Lord that there shall be a noise of a cry from the fish gate and then a howling from the second and a great crashing from the hills. A day of wailing and a day of crashing, a day of howling. And verse number 11 says, Howl, you inhabitants of Maktesh, for all the merchant people are cut down, all they that bear silver are cut off. As you close that slide with me, there were many you see at ease. They were seemingly thinking all is well, but then it wasn't. That continuation on the next slide led me to select a few of the words that were used in verses 15 and 16. I'd like to read them first and then as you and I reflect upon them to be impressed with just how extensive the description was. I'll start reading in verse 14. The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hasteth greatly, even the voice of the day of the Lord. 
The mighty man shall cry there bitterly. The day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of wasteness and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of the trumpet and alarm against the fenced cities and against the high towers. The next verse mentions distress. By now our mind has been settled, and we can see how different the actual day was going to be in contrast to the way they were thinking it was going to be. They thought the greatness of God was going to remove them from the overlording matter of any surrounding nation. We will be victorious. We will rule over all of our enemies. Everything will be wonderful because God will be with us. And Zephaniah says, Excuse me, you have lived in sin. You've chosen to turn your back on the Lord. You have lived, in fact, despite His commandments. You've directed your attention to idols. You have treated one another unkindly. You have not followed His will. And you are supposing that this day of the Lord is going to be a day of great victory? On the other hand, it'll be a day in which you will be consumed. You will find a day of distress, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day in which you shall be overwhelmed. They needed so much to understand that the day of the Lord they were picturing was not the day that it was actually going to happen. And Zephaniah labored to help them appreciate that distinction. You'll notice about the middle of that slide, several things in this chapter are highlighted. And we can easily from them indicate what they thought was going to be the saving grace of that day. May I direct your attention to verse 16. We read a moment ago about a day of the trumpet and alarm against the fenced cities. They thought that the wall around their city was going to be sufficient to protect them from any enemies that would come their way. But that was not going to be true. Notice also in verse 17, I will bring distress upon men. They shall walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord. And their blood shall be poured out as dust and their flesh as the dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them. Their wealth won't make much difference that day. Their gold, their silver will not save them. And that's still a matter of certainly great interest for one and all, even in our day, isn't it? They were told, weren't they, that on that day when these enemy nations were going to come, and it was primarily going to be Babylon, of course, but when they came, these issues were not going to save them. The wall of the city, the money, the possessions, they needed to have their interest somewhere else. For that reason on that slide, I might invite you to note this. Right near the bottom, the people were told something in Zephaniah 2 verse 3. This was critical. Seek ye the Lord... All ye meek of the earth, which have wrought his judgment, seek righteousness, seek meekness. It may be ye shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. When Brother Vestal read that a moment ago, doesn't it point out to us that the people's heart and their conviction and their devotion should have been with the God of heaven all along? And yet they are at least admonished to repent, admonished to turn back to him. Because it might well be that God in mercy will extend favor and you in that verse may be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. God was angry. The wrath of God was going to be poured forth. 
It was a time of consideration, and it was a time of serious issue, to be sure. You may notice also on that slide, I invited you to note this. Zephaniah even encourages us to be mindful of some of the, of the nature of that day and time. What kind of sins did they commit? Would you turn with me to chapter 3? Beginning in verse 1 of that chapter, we are invited to consider some of that which was before them. Woe to her that is filthy and polluted to the oppressing city. Now, the city's not mentioned there by name, but you and I recognize that as Jerusalem. This place that was the center capital, if you please, of Judah. It was an oppressive city. They crushed underneath those that were poor, those that were disadvantaged. That would have included the widows, the orphans. They didn't extend to them the consideration of kindness as ought to have been the case. Let's read on. She obeyed not the voice. She received not correction. She trusted not in the Lord. She drew not near to her God. Zephaniah makes it plain to us, doesn't he? God had sent His prophets throughout the decades previous, urging them to repent, urging them to turn to God, and they hadn't. That verse then also mentions this. She drew not near isn't it sad to be distant from God? Isn't it troubling? To those who are in the right mind, that's just a terrible state to be in. Let's read on to verse 3. Her princes within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves. They gnaw not the bones till the morrow. You'll notice that some of those in the city, in particular the judges, those that should have made right declarations, those that should have made right decrees in earnestness and in recognition, they are portrayed as evening wolves. You can well imagine that those who often would have cases such as they had been disadvantaged by a certain landowner or by a certain owner of some other possessions or houses. And they would bring their cases before the judges and the judges because of the wealth of the one and perhaps due to bribery would, would rule in the favor of that one despite the case that actual justice went the other direction. The first part of that verse, her princes, that is to say the civil leaders, they are portrayed as roaring lions. They would take advantage of any and all, advantaging themselves in the disadvantage of others. Verse 4, her prophets are light and treacherous persons. Even those that should have been the religious leaders, those that were the recognized people who were decreed as prophets. Did you notice? It didn't say they were true prophets. It didn't say they were godly prophets. It said they were prophets, but they were light and treacherous. That is to say, they would tell you what you wanted to hear. They wouldn't prophesy the things of God, but they would prophesy what they thought the audience wanted to hear so that they could, in fact, have more money in the coffers. The treasury would be larger so that they could enjoy the fruits and benefits of it. What does that sound like? Those in the world of religion that will say what you want them to say, just so that you will not only will be in attendance, but that you will, in fact, give so that they could be blessed. That verse goes on to say this, Her priests have polluted the sanctuary. 
They have done violence to the law. They didn't teach what the law of God said. They've done violence to it. They've perverted it. They've twisted it. And that verse said it like this, They have polluted the sanctuary. The sanctuary was that recognized place that was supposed to be dedicated to the honor of God and His will. And they had polluted it. Look at the next verse. The just Lord is in the midst thereof. He will not do iniquity. Every morning doth He bring His judgment to light. He faileth not, but the unjust knoweth no shame. I have cut off the nations. Their towers are desolate. I made their streets waste that none passeth by. Their cities are destroyed so that there is no man that there is none inhabitant. I said, Surely thou wilt fear me. Thou wilt receive instruction. So their dwellings should not be cut off, howsoever I punish them. But they rose early and corrupted all their doings. That surely must be one of the saddest verses of the Old Testament. God said, I sent them teachers. I sent them prophets. I urged them to repent. And I had in my mind that I could avert this destruction. But you know what they did? They rose early to corrupt all their doings. All my pleadings made no difference. All the urgings and the encouragements made no difference. It's almost as though, based on that verse, they set their clock early so they could get up and see how much sin they could commit before lunch. That's the kind of place Jerusalem had become. That's the kind of dwelling place it had been. Doesn't that make it all the sadder when you recognize that for centuries... They had had the law of God proclaimed, supposedly. For centuries, they had been a people who should have been dedicated to it, and now they're described like this. How tragic. How sad. As you and I close that slide, it only challenges us to wonder what else did Zephaniah have to say to them. All that I've described so far takes you from chapter 1, verse 1, really, all the way to chapter 3, verse number 7. Beginning in chapter 3, verse 8, an entirely different tone is presented. A different description. You probably could imagine what it shall be. I'd like to highlight it in the words of this particular slide. Therefore wait ye upon me, saith the Lord, until the day that I rise up to the prey. For my determination is to gather the nations that I may assemble the kingdoms to pour out upon them mine indignation, even all my fierce anger. For all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. For then will I turn to the people a pure language, that they may all call upon the name of the Lord to serve Him with one consent. Doesn't that just excite each of us? To hear that God identifies in verse number 9, as well as verse 8. The thought of this coming destruction, when the nations shall meet the wrath and anger of God, but following that, in verse number 9, is a restoration, a blessing connected to those of a pure language. That'll at least be a fair part of our description of what follows. But on that slide, I have selected a few words drawn from the latter verses of this chapter that so sweetly describes what's now before us. Jerusalem was told that they needed to wait upon the Lord. 
Judah was reminded the necessity of that waiting. But then in verses 20, you'll notice there was a description of salvation. I will remove the captivity. They were going to go to captivity, but God says, I'm going to take that away. And you'll be allowed to come back to this place and enjoy a wonderful relationship with the God of heaven. In that restoration, you would easily note this with me. It was highlighted that it was going to involve a pure language. That initially might sound puzzling. What was meant by that? The literal rendering, as you can see on that slide, was to save by virtue of observing that this was a people currently having spoken profanity. They had spoken corruptness, and God was now going to bring to play a recognized people of a pure lip, pure language. That seems to suggest easily, doesn't it, that among the things of which they had been guilty, they weren't talking the way they ought to have talked. They were speaking impurities and profanities. They were speaking what was not consistent with what should have been the case for people supposedly connected to God. And that again reminds us, doesn't it, about the character of how pure our language ought to be. God was going to restore people of a pure language. On that slide, I've invited you to note finally this thing in verse 11. In that day shalt thou not be ashamed for all thy doings, wherein thou hast transgressed against me. They were going to have been forgiven. They would have passed through the character of punishment due to that sin, and then there was to have been an element of atonement at least directed their way. Surely that verse 11 ends by saying this, For then I will make... I will take away out of the midst of thee them that rejoice in thy pride, and thou shalt no more be haughty because of my holy mountain. One of the dangers that had come to be a matter of reality, they thought because of the temple, there was no way anything could ever happen to them. There's no way enemy nations can overwhelm us because we've got the temple. There's no way these foreign powers can conquer us. We have the temple. That's what they thought. You can see here that God thought differently than that. That temple, as they viewed it, was their guarantee of safety. All, of, all along, as we're studying on Sunday morning, we have found many things that can be said about that temple. Now, admittedly, inasmuch as that temple in all of its splendor was erected in the day of Solomon... We certainly have already learned God's will was never for there to be such a thing. And yet all the while here, they had come to trust in it regardless how they were living. They were living in sinfulness. They were living ungodliness. They were talking the way they should, and yet they thought the temple guaranteed their safety and that God was going to look in them and protect them. One of the greatest sermons Jeremiah ever preached in Jeremiah chapter 7, developed that very idea in great detail. You may remember it was a threefold presentation. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And as, Sol as rather Jeremiah developed it, he says, you think this temple is your guarantee of protection, but it's not because your lives are not what they ought to be. God looks on the heart, doesn't He? 
In Acts 1 verse 24, Jesus our Lord is the great heart searcher. He understands that you and I are prompted to live in faithfulness. It is not some external agency. There are those in our world, I suppose, who have their religion connected to a man and a pulpit. But shame on any of us if that's how far our religion goes. Our religion needs to be from the heart that you and I serve the Lord in faithfulness. And we serve Him because we love Him in light of what He's done for us. It isn't connected to simply some chunk of wood. It's connected to the liveliness of the Word that He's given us and the faithfulness with, with, with which we are allowed to serve Him. On this next slide, as we conclude that discussion about the restoration, we so often are reminded then of the connection of this little book to the Day of Judgment. I think the parallel is remarkable, don't you? There are many people in our world who suppose the day of judgment is going to be a day of wonderment, a day of rejoicing and celebration despite the fact they haven't lived for Him here upon earth. They supposedly think it's just an automatic entrance once you die into bliss. They're going to find out that that day of judgment, just like Zephaniah declared for the people of that day, it's a day of darkness and gloominess for those not ready. It's a day of great despair for those unprepared. And that's true for those that walk with the Lord. Oh, that day of judgment is going to be an unparalleled day of ecstasy. A day of sheer enjoyment, wherein one is permitted to hear the great Master say, Thou hast been faithful over a few things. Be thou ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joys of thy Lord. To borrow the wording of Luke 19. Surely in that connection... Many in that fateful day may well hope that their money will save them. And yet in Revelation 18, we're told it won't. Many in that day may suppose that great mercy from the Lord, in light of their connection, may save them. But yet you and I know that it will not. Because Romans 14, 12 still reminds us, so then every one of us must give account of himself to the Lord. There may have been a church of Christ building in a person's community, and maybe they suppose that existence will be enough. But that won't be enough. Each of us must be faithful. Each of us must be dedicated. Zephaniah, it seems to me, portrays that message in the clearest way of all the Old Testament prophets. As you and I close this lesson tonight, haven't we seen, at least in the book of Zephaniah, what might be described in these very short descriptions. First, the setting reminded us of how ease the people had become. Everything was fine economically, and everything was fine in many other avenues of life, and yet Zephaniah urged them, it's not right religiously, and you need to make some changes. Seek the Lord, he would tell them. In addition to that, the center thought of this book is the day of the Lord. In Zephaniah's day, that referred to the coming destruction of Jerusalem, the impending arrival of Babylon. People weren't ready, and they were taken to captivity, and how sore and tragic it was in many ways. But it couldn't be. They couldn't say that Zephaniah didn't warn us. They couldn't say Jeremiah hadn't told us. So too today, aren't we thankful the Word of God still tells us? And so it allows us to conclude by saying, 
in the beautiful description of the restoration, God said that He would form a people of pure language. I hope that describes you and me. A people not only of pure language, but of a life that's pure. Because aren't we reminded in Matthew 5 verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Tonight there may be someone in this assembly who has been prompted by the book of Zephaniah, though written a long time, really before even Jesus came to the planet. It nonetheless asserted to the people of that day how much God loved them and how much He wanted them to receive His blessings and not His wrath. But He would leave them to make the final choice. They chose His anger. They chose His wrath. That's what they got. I know that you and I would wish to be wiser than that, would wish to be more careful in thought than that, because we want to be ready for that noble day of judgment, understanding that it shall be a day in which there will be many to receive His wrath, but we wish to receive His favor. We wish to receive the goodness of His grace because we wish to have the Advocate Jesus Christ, our Master, there appealing for us. And by virtue of His blood, He will do just that. Are you covered in His blood tonight? Are you and I walking faithfully in consistency to it? The Word of God urges us in that way, and we would wish to offer the Lord's invitation. If you've never become a Christian, let tonight be the night. Jesus demands of you that you believe in Him, that you make repentance of your sins, that you confess His name, that you be baptized. If you have known that way of life, but maybe as a result of pride in life, which of course they in Jerusalem were guilty of as well, or maybe you've just been in a position of where you've become careless. One of the things Zephaniah urges us is we can't be careless. And didn't Jesus say that too? In Matthew 24, He urged one and all to watch and to never be careless. If tonight we could pray on your behalf, if we could in fact make observation, as does the Lord, about your element in confession and of things that you would wish to repent of, we would love to do this. And just as in Zephaniah's day, God's mercy is extended. Tonight, if we could help in any way in that regard, Brother Eddie's chosen a psalm of encouragement. And we'll extend the Lord's invitation at this time. If anyone would wish to come, do it now. While together we stand and while we sing.